eye is the symbol of knowledge. But who is the seer who stands behind both ignorance and knowledge? Who is beyond ignorance and knowledge and yet uses both for its own purposes? Because right now these glasses are serving a purpose for me, just as the eye serves a purpose. And then there was a new way of relating to the mother. So, of course, we have read it in Savitri that there are two who are one who play in many worlds. In knowledge and ignorance, they have spoken and met. And light and darkness are their eyes interchange. So, uh, what we call as ignorance and what we call as knowledge is the play of the one, which is what I think Narad was beautifully reminding us of. There was another interesting symbol which you see everything that happens in life happens with a very beautiful purpose. So if we don't look at it, uh, look at the surfaces then we discover the purpose. Uh, Sometimes the purpose is revealed to us as an act of grace. So as uh, we were coming, so we were told that uh, this time we have only one building in which all of us are staying. Is, is that right information? Yeah. Now, there was a very interesting phenomena. The, the, the alphabet of this building is I. <laughs> so, I said, what does this I stand for? Well, it could stand for integral yoga. So we are talking about integral yoga and so it's I. Then I said, look, what does, uh, normally we relate with I, the ego individuality, I. I am, you know, an individual, but I can also relate to the true I. But you know, it was not somehow uh, really, you know. Sometimes when you have a straight revelation, it's like a straight fit. You know, that's it. So again, while sitting, I said, "Oh, that's the wrong way to look at it. It's not I. It's one. It's a Roman numeral one. So we are all one, and we are all one body." And this is the great truth we are here to learn. One of the first foundations of uh, any life. So when we speak about foundations of spiritual life or integral yoga, um, that's probably again uh, when we speak of spiritual life and yoga. Uh, as if there are some other foundations of some ordinary life. This has created a schism in our understanding of life itself. So often we have people who say, ye yoga ke liye hai. this is fine for spirituality, but this doesn't apply to life. This is an absurdity we have to get rid of. In fact, what applies to yoga applies even more um, with a greater power and truth on life itself. In fact, life doesn't have two foundations. There is nothing like there is a foundation for yogic life and there is a foundation for normal ordinary life. When mother was asked about the curriculum in the school that how do we teach our children about spiritual life? She got, uh, you know, uh, like a milder version of Kali, <laughs> Mahakali. She says, once again this division, why do you make a difference, a distinction between spiritual life and material life? This is something which has to go. We are fast approaching an age where this Secular and the spiritual is going to melt into each other, embrace each other, enrich each other. So when we speak about foundations of integral yoga practice or integral yoga, whatever uh, be the terminology, we are actually meaning at once the foundations of life itself. 
Now, what happened that normally we don't know about these foundations. So we lead life whatever way we think is best. As the mother put it so beautifully, she says, you know, my child, one of the tragedies of life, there are so many tragedies, of course. One of them, she said, is that to die without finding your soul, it's the tragedy of life. And most of us are, don't even regard it as a tragedy. So, but one of the tragedies of life, one of the ironies of life, is that we learn how to live truly by the time we are 60. And, well, <laughs> we are already, it's time to apply for, for the graveyard. It, it's an irony. It's really, and it's a fact. It's not just an irony, it's a fact. By the time we are 60, we have learned a lot of things. Learned through experience, learned through failure, learned through success, learned through bitterness, learned through sweetness, learned through fall. And now when we want to apply that knowledge into real life, we realize we can't apply it anymore on ourselves. So we try to pass this down to our grandchildren. Because children have also, you know, I must learn my way. And grandchildren, you know, they say, look, look, grandpa, grandma, you have made your mistakes. I need to make mine. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really ironical that we learn so late. And... That's when one really begins to live because one has known what really life is about. Now, but thanks to the effort of mankind in a certain direction, like today we have, we switch on and everything is, the lights are on in the room and uh, many things we just take it for granted. So thanks to the effort of uh, certain, what we call as seekers in a certain line of direction, everybody is a seeker, even a scientist is a seeker. An artist is a seeker, he's a seeker of beauty and delight. A scientist is a seeker of truth of a certain kind, truths of material world, truths of uh, living world, truths of uh, you know psychological world. So similarly, there are seekers of a certain kind whom we call as spiritual seekers. Uh, these are seekers who in all countries have tried to find what is at the base of life, what lies at the roots of life, what is the foundation of this vast empire, this creation, this world bubbling with energy, teeming with forces, processes, billions, billions, trillions, uh, like, you know, so many rays of the sun shot out into the darkness. Uh, I'm again reminded of a little incident just a few days back as, uh, you know, I was going to Mathur Mandir with a friend and, uh, you know, since the friend's birthday was very close, and uh, the friend told me, you know, on my birthday I like to remain silent. So it's very good, it's in Pondicherry people do it. Uh, and then suddenly a thought stuck to me and uh, a remark came out. What kind of silence? There is a silence on which this whole creation is built. You know, there is a silence which can dance in a million, million ways and yet it doesn't lose its silence. So what is that which is so powerful? at the roots of life that it can dissolve and absorb million words and throw them out every moment. Actually, uh, we believe that, you know, we talk about cycles of creation and then the dissolution. But at another level, we can perhaps experience, uh, I have not experienced this, but surely there is a possibility of experiencing the whole universe being dissolved at each moment and being new created. And the reason why I say this is that... Um, there is not one single element in the universe 
which at the next moment is exactly the same. It changes its position in space, it changes its context in time, it changes its relationship with everything around it. And yet, the beauty of all this is, if one looks at it, it, it should be chaos. And there is a kind of chaos. And yet the beauty is within that fraction of a moment, in that pause. Sure, there is that magnificent line in Savitri over which there have been, you know, correspondence and pages of mental energy wasted, I would say. Whether it's pauses, tricks the brain or pauses in the brain. The emphasis lost the pause. And in that pause, everything, all the millions, billions, trillions of things, elements, forces, time, space, context, everything readjusts in such a way that once again there is a new order, new harmony. That's how there is a sense of fixity in this world. There is nothing which is fixed. Everything is moving. Everything is changing. Everything is mutable. And yet, we get a sense that, well, there is a fixity, there is an order. Every moment the very cells of the body are changing. In fact, we are not the same body after seven years. The whole body has undergone an overhaul. And what an overhaul, it's like a new body we get. And it's, uh, you know, it continues so many times over throughout life. And yet when we get the same sense that it's my body. And it's not just a mental sense. There's a kind of connectivity so certain things continue. If that were not to happen, the whole thing would collapse. It is just about one single body. And now we cannot imagine the, the you know, when we look at all the bodies in this, uh, just the human bodies in this planet, and then all other bodies in this world, and then not just the bodies, um, living bodies, but physical bodies in this universe, objects, and then not just physical and living bodies, beings and energies of countless worlds, worlds beyond worlds, beyond worlds, and how everything, everything, everything adjusts at whose beckon? At the beckon of the one. And to know that one is the first fundamental necessity of life. It's very interesting. There's, there's, in Savitri, you know, there's a lot of humor. And um, I, I really hope to perhaps one day just uh, take out those portions of Savitri which are really full of that, that kind of humor which only Shurabindu could give us. Uh, very subtle, very gentle, very profound and it can sometimes make you split into laughter. So one of the humors is that, you know, Shivindu describes kingdoms of the greater mind and he speaks about beings who live by intuition and they are high beings uh, and they really can know everything that is possible to know in the curve of space. They can know everything that is possible to know in the context of time. And yet he says, they can, in fact he says very humorously, the diameter of infinity was drawn. Now this line is really so fantastic. The diameter of infinity was drawn. They could predict every act and thought of God. So, you know, it, it points out at our utter ignorance and stupidity. When we believe, we know, you know what God is thinking. We know what God is doing. Well, at the end, it ends beautifully, that whole passage. By knowing too much, they missed the one thing to be known. By knowing too much, they missed the one thing to be known. And the transcendent kept its secrecy. There is a 
very beautiful line by Saint Kabir. I'll just say in Hindi and then because it has its flavor, then translate in English. He says, uh, it's either Kabir or Guru Nanak. I think it's Kabir. He says, Eke jane sab jane. Sab janat ek na By knowing one, you can know all. But by knowing all, you cannot know the one. Shravindu says something very, very similar in the same canto I'm referring to. He says, uh, only when you know, we only when the one is known can ought be revealed. Unless we know that, we cannot really know everything else. So why this is important as a foundational principle, as the very first foundation? Because then we discover what is the relation of everything else to that one. The mistake we make in life is we relate everything based on its relation either in context of a limited time and space or in the context of he and she and he and he and this and that. And therefore life always eludes us, it fails us, it baffles us, it puzzles us, it, you know, uh, it always make, fills us with a sense of maybe wonder and at the same time with a sense of awe and sometimes with a sense of what kind of a chaotic, meaningless, absurd world this is because we are relating everything in relation to something else which is in uh, in, you know, in ignorance how we make relations uh, of one object to another. That may be the immediate context. And the moment the thing shifts, we are confused. Why this happened? How this happened? And then we start building another context. That's not how one understands life. But when we relate everything else back to the one, when we refer it back to the one, when, then we discover something very interesting and it's a fascinating thing to discover. I mean, it's amazing throughout life one can keep making this discovery that all through this life as I was journeying along, irrespective of everything that we may have experienced, known, felt, struggled, suffered, enjoyed, fell and rose and rose and fell again, met with failure, met with success, there was one common theme, one common thread. We were coming closer and closer to the one. And if we are conscious, we can actually see it happening. It's something very amazing. And those were the lines, marvelous lines. Uh, one of my favorite ones from Savitri, which Narad was reading, uh, Alive in a dead rotating universe, we whirl not here upon a casual globe. A divine intervention thrones above. And then those magical lines come. One, the power of one. One who has made this world is ever its Lord. Our errors are his steps upon the way. This, you know, is like a mantra when we so-called, you know, make mistakes. Even Shubhindu says it's better to make mistakes following the call of the soul. Something amazing. Our errors are his steps upon the way. He works through the fierce vicissitudes of our lives. He works through the hard breath of battle and toil. He works through our sorrows, our sins and our tears. And then those lines which he read out. Whatever the appearance we must bear. Whatever our strong ills and present fate. When nothing we can do but drift and bail. A mighty guidance leads us still through all. 
This is the second foundation that this one is not just someone who is a witness, unconcerned, aloof, anirvachni as they say, you know, one who cannot be spoken of, who is beyond all, who has nothing to do with all, like a veritable Shiva with his eyes shut, contemplating some luminous heavens. That is not just the one. There is another aspect of the one. And that aspect is the one who is dynamically entered into this creation, into the heart of its processes, into the minutest atom, the infinitesimal. And he has turned that infinitesimal into an abode of the infinite. So it's very interesting, recently we had the God particle. And, uh, you know, there is sometimes, uh, history brings a strange sense of deja vu, but also with a touch of irony in it. Uh, I think very few people may be knowing that Shurvindu long, long back, must be in his 30s, wrote a poem. And the poem is titled Electron. And in that poem, the second line runs this way. There leapt a spark, a particle of God. Now, it's very interesting that there are two ways of looking at it. Some people are very thrilled that look, Shurabindu predicted the Higgs boson particle. But that's not how it struck me. You see, when we say God particle and when we say particle of God, it makes a world of difference. Just a particle of God, everything, even a grain of dust is a particle of God. This is the smallest, minutest, he calls it the minutest abode. His first temple, the universe is his temple, the atom is his temple, the electron is his temple. It's the minutest temple in which Shiva in his fiery chariot rides. So, entire infinite is compressed into the infinitesimal and it becomes a blind, minute abode of the infinite. That is how he describes the electron. It leaped a particle of God. Whereas when we say God particle, we are making it appear as if God is just a little particle and out of that everything has come up. At least that's how the scientists what seem to project. That's not its truth. It is a particle of God. Everything has come out of that. And then we see the wonder of things. That how could that infinite See, the same truth, we can invert it, look at it this way and we can look at it that way and it changes the whole understanding. One way to look at it, oh, so finally we have discovered all this God talk and all this was nothing but, uh, you know, we were talking about basically an energy, a little, uh, you know, particle which uh, can give weight and mass to objects and create form out of formlessness. This is what the Vedic seers discovered. No, Vedic seers discovered something even more interesting. They discovered that the infinite has so loosed forth himself into the act of creation that he has compressed himself into the infinitesimal. That is what the Upanishad says. Purnamidan, Purnamadan, Purnat, Purnamadachyate, Purnasya, Purnamadaya, Purnamivamashishyate. The full, when you subtract the full, yet the full remains the full. So even in this act, he has turned everything, every element into his abode. This is one of the great truths that he is not just sitting behind, he is dynamic in creation. In fact, when the word integral is used, we use the word integral in many senses and perhaps in God knows how many more senses it is going to be used. Once I remember uh, in Cape Town, 
I was taken to a center of integral yoga and divine life. I said, uh, this is something very familiar, but <laughs> So I went there and, you know, there was a typical chanting going on and all that. I said, this is not very familiar to me. <laughs> I am familiar in my childhood days, but this doesn't look like what, you know. And it was like a, it was a traditional yoga center inspired by, I won't name the Swamiji, and it was a completely Mayavadi, Mokshvadi, you know, center which was talking about ultimate salvation life, beyond life. But the name was there very much, and they had a justification for the name. Uh, whatever the justification was now, you know, it's gone off my head because it was not really important. But uh, the, the interesting part is the word integral, Though it's used in many senses, one sense is it's mind, body, life, uh, soul and spiritual. This is one sense of the word integral. But there is another very beautiful sense and the truest sense, the deepest sense in which Shurabindu uses it. And it comes in Savitri again, the integral Godhead's seal. The integral Godhead is the passive and the dynamic side of the one. And that is why there comes a beautiful mantra, the synthesis is full of mantra, Shri writings is full of mantra. One of the mantra that he says is that we have to arrive at the truth of the tantra by the path of the Vedanta. We have to first arrive at the knowledge of the one and then how that one has become the many. How that shakti aspect of the divine, what we call a shakti, the power, the power of one, the just knowledge of the one who is behind creation is not enough. One has to also know how that one has become many. This knowledge is very, very important. And perhaps a number of sessions, unwittingly, actually when all these talks were planned, uh, I don't think uh, we were really thinking like that. I mean, I was not thinking of all this even just a few minutes before uh, sitting here that I didn't know what I'm going to speak. All that I had in mind was last time HP's remark that... Uh, you know, you went way beyond and you know, just tone it down and get down. <laughs> so, I was just feeding that data into my computer and praying to her that mother, I don't know whether it's toned down or not. <laughs> but, but uh, you see, this is what is the beauty of things. That suddenly of all the things, uh, Savitri lines have come later. The one thing that came to my memory was last time your remark. That look, you know, <laughs> this is gone way beyond. <laughs> so I said, okay, great. So, so basically, it's the passive and the dynamic side both. Now, in traditional yoga, when we speak about the differences between integral and traditional yoga, one of the differences which is very striking is in traditional yoga, since we don't have to do much with the world except to find a way of escape. So, the understanding of the world and its processes, it's basically very if I may use a word rudimentarily spiritual. Rudimentarily, it's not rudimentary in the sense that, you know, there is no truth in it. There is a truth in it. Now, when the great spiritual master says Jagan Mithya, he is speaking of a certain kind of truth, a certain kind of experience. When Shurabindu was asked about this, you know, Shurabindu says, well, uh, there is a certain truth at a certain level and Shankara is right at that level. But what can I do if in me Maya became, Maya was became the beginning of another kind of experience? He didn't stop there. He discovered when it is said that, you know, this world is an illusion. 
when, when the mother in one of her talks in 1929 very beautifully puts it. She says, my child, yes, it is an illusion in the sense it is not a true representation of reality. It's not illusion in the sense that it's a non-existent reality if ever such a thing were to be. It's an illusion in the sense that it, it everything on the surface of life, when we look at it, it is not the representation of truth, even though truth is working in its heart. But yet, what comes to the surface is a froth and foam, and it's, it does not really truly represent what that is. And one of the examples that comes to my mind, there are countless examples that come, one of them is that when we look at the froth and foam on the surface, can we measure the ocean depth? Can we understand the power of the ocean? Can we even comprehend what kind of creatures would be there? Can we even by the remotest possibility stretch our minds to conceive what danger and delight lies in plunging ourselves into it? What continents await our discovery if we sail over it? We cannot. We are looking at the froth and foam on the surface. So the froth and foam on the surface is a kind of illusion. If we say this is the ocean, then we are fooling ourselves. So there is another aspect of it that, well, if life on the surface is not a true representation of things, yet the difference in traditional and integral yoga lies that traditional yoga says, well, this is how it has to be. And what I can do is I jump into the froth and the foam, find a way through which I can go down into the depths and be done with life. But integral yoga says, no, I must bring out that truth which is behind, that dynamics of life. There is a great power, a great knowledge, a great delight in creation. And why can't I experience it in my everyday activity? When I eat, when I drink, when I walk, when I speak, when I sleep, in all my actions, in my relationships, in friendships, why can't that truth be brought out? This seeking of man to express that truth in outer life, manifest in a very ignorant and, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't use the word crude, but not so refined way because it is still an ignorant way, is in the idealistic temper of humanity. Now, all idealism is within the realm of ignorance, a catching of the shadow of the one. There is a truth. That's why idealistic people, you know, they have risen to a point of, you know, in, in the journey through the processes of birth, after birth, and they have begun to see some kind of a reflection within their mental uh, stratosphere. And they want to express it into this life. But it fails because one wants to do it through a sense of romantic idealism, through a kind of sentimentalism. We see those movies of the 60s in India and I think elsewhere also, where, you know, there was a lot of idealistic angst expressed in life. Ideal love, ideal um, work, ideal conditions of life. But, you know, it was all ill-conceived and people thought that by crying about it, by, you know, throwing up a prayer to heaven, we can create it. But that's not how one can create it. One doesn't even know what actually that ideal is. Now, that ideal derives its image from the real idea. You know, one of the expressions of the supramental truth is the real idea, of which all ideas are like many phalanges of the sun. Now, there is a real idea, and that real idea, which is expressing itself into countless ways, is a very beautiful word for it. 
There are many words. Every culture, every religion, every secular effort of mankind in this direction. There is not one single civilization in the world which is not sorted. But the beauty of this word is, is you know, it has such beautiful Sanskrit roots. I'm sure um, Brother Sampad, he is there in our midst and I'm so happy uh, he is there to speak, you know, a little bit about Sanskrit and Shurabindu's light. So the word used is Sanatan Dharma. And Shurabindu says in one of his speeches, I think it's a Bidon Square speech or it's there in the Karmi The date I remember because there is a personal affinity to it, 19th June, 1909. And Shurabindu says there is a mighty law of life. There is a great rule of living. And then he says, Esaha Dharma Sanatana. It is the truth which the one, the, the real, which is behind everything, which is eternal, it's not perishable. Though everything else is mutable, but that is immutable. That does not get destroyed. But that is one kind of understanding of it. The second is that that one truth is unfolding itself in a certain way. Now, that alignment to that truth in the unfolding is the evolutionary aspect of Sanatana Dharma. So we can have two approaches to life. One is that we are attuned and aligned to this unfolding. You see, a lot of things if we look at, uh, at least in the Indian context where, where the, this Sanatana Dharma was given a lot of emphasis in life, society, culture, everything. It seeped into the very most external aspects of life. It was to this extent that, uh, well, I can relate some of the things in my childhood and I'm sure in, in many persons would relate with it, that when we got up in the morning, we were supposed to touch the uh, earth. And then, you know, when the, when the chapati, the roti was prepared, uh, the bread was prepared, the first bread was given to the cow and to the sun and uh, to the gods and then, you know, human beings could have it. And uh, strangely, the person who prepared was the last to have it. It was, I mean, it, it would look very strange from a certain perspective. But now when I look back at it, I understand, my God, this was Sanatana Dharma in the most external aspect of life, which I could never understand. And if one could align oneself, I, of course, it doesn't mean that now we have to start doing it. That would be anachronistic to find a cow. <laughs> Even in even in Jersey City to find a Jersey cow, I don't think the name is derived from that. Probably it's, it's from UK, but you know, to find a cow is itself is very difficult. In India, we find plenty, you know, on the roads. We'll, we'll always find a cow or a buffalo or, or a horse, you know, running side by side with a muscle Benz. So that's not an issue. <laughs> but but it's so difficult, you know. Uh, now this has to be applied in life in a new way. But at one point of time, the whole principle of this civilization was that, look, there is a way of growing. If we align ourselves to the evolutionary impulse, then the whole process is beautiful and smooth. But that required a lot of self-discipline. That required a certain degree of subordination of the freedom, and therefore it was contravening another principle of evolution, that is freedom. This was the big difficulty because over a period of time it became mechanical. You had to just do it. Why? Because your mom says so, your dad says so. So it was coming in the way of another great principle of freedom, uh, principle of evolution that is freedom. This dharma wants to unfold itself 
in a free way because it's infinite. It is beyond all rules and yet in the process of evolution it has created certain rules of living. So when we speak of foundation we also speak of certain, uh, certain rules which are implicit and ingrained in life. Nobody teaches us, nobody speaks about it. We pass through an entire graduation and post-graduation program without knowing these rules. I mean my entire medical curriculum, um, leaving aside that they taught me basically nothing much except how to prescribe drugs and uh, I sometimes feel very weird when people come and thank me, oh doctor, uh, thank you so much, your medicine cured me and I, I uh, you know, feel very shy about accepting the compliment because I neither discovered the medicine you know, somebody discovered it and we, we don't even, even I feel bad that I have forgotten the name of the person who discovered it. Most of the time they are not taught. <laughs> Otherwise I could pass on this, you know, okay, you know, it's to his credit. <laughs> it's in his name. But you know, the whole thing goes into my account. So, you know, leave aside this aspect and many other aspect of health and healing. Nobody taught a very fundamental rule of, uh, you know, life which applies in integral yoga, which applies in real life. And maybe with that analogy we'll close because we'll be speaking about it the rest of the days. You know, there's a very very fundamental rule uh, which in the Gita is spoken of in a very cryptic way. It is spoken of in the Bible also, but again in a cryptic way. And the Gita says, it is through sacrifice that he created this world. Now, you know, one wonders what kind of sacrifice there are many levels at which uh, you know it operates. It's through sacrifice that he holds the people together. So what is this sacrifice that is, you know, one of the problem of words is that now we have fixed meanings in our head. Whereas the ancients had a very flexible meaning, Sarpad uh, would reveal to us. So, you know, this fixity of the meaning has created problems. So with sacrifice, I mean, what does it mean? I, I've got to sacrifice? Why should I? For whom? For whose sake? For somebody whom I don't know, whom I am not sure whether in this life I will find or not? Or, uh, you know, I have to sacrifice all the beautiful things of life for so-called imaginary? It's not that which is being meant. It is, it is a fundamental rule of life. If we don't know it, our life will be miserable. Forget about yoga. And it is revealed in a very beautiful little story in... Uh, um, I forget the reference, but I know the characters. Yanvalk. Yanvalk, uh, his wife, uh, I think it was Maitri. Maitri asks him that, um, I mean, it's a very interesting interlude. His first wife was Katyaini, and Maitri is the second wife. And, you know, when he has to divide his property, so he wants to divide all the financial assets equally between the two, so that they don't fight with each other. But, you know, human nature is always the same and the problems and issues are same. But the solutions are very different. So now, you know, he says, I, I'm done with things and I want to, you know, uh, now uh, plunge into the absolute or make deeper discoveries, whatever it be. I don't believe that uh, what is written in the story that he wanted to go to the forest, it meant he wanted to abandon life. Uh, certainly, young who gave us the Ishupishat could not be doing that. But uh, he wanted to somehow leave the home. Maybe, you know, he was simply just done with it. So, so his, his second wife tells him that, look, I appreciate that you are going to divide equally into both. 
But I want to know that will all this give me happiness? He says, well, that uh, I can tell you that, you know, <laughs> don't look for it that way. He says, no, then I want that knowledge. I know you are a man of knowledge. I mean, few words are, uh, I am expressing it in my own andaz. So he says, you know, give me that knowledge. And then she asks him a very interesting question. She says, okay, tell me, why does a man love his wife, his son, his child, uh, his country, etc.? So Yagnavalk gives a very interesting answer. He says, you know, Maitri, one does not love the wife for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the self. One does not love the child for the sake of the child, but for the sake of the self. One does not love the country for the sake of the country, but for the sake of the self. You know, this operates at two levels, to say the least. And it brings in the principle of sacrifice in a very interesting way. Now, when we are living in ignorance, then this self is self with a small s, the I of the ego individuality. So one loves naturally because she is my wife, my husband, my child. Obviously, I would love. If it was somebody else's child, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> so, you know, this is a very ignorant form of love. It brings pain, it brings problems, it brings difficulties. Because this is not the rule of true living. It brings conflicts because the moment you say, I love for the sake of my ego, I would want, because ego by its nature is a limited individuality and because behind it stands the fullness of the one of which it is a shadow, it always wants to recreate that one. So what happens when somebody loves another person through the ego? One always wants to be fed back. It is one of the big problems of relationship. We'll be talking about it, I think, in one of the talks, something on human relationships. So if you, you one wants that food. Now, out of maybe a million uh, relationships, probably one would be there where you scratch my back and I scratch yours and you do this and I do this part of yours and things work out. But most of the time this feeling doesn't take place and after a while the ego self is disappointed, frustrated, turns elsewhere, this way, that way and all the issues comes, come up. But there is another truth ingrained in it and if we follow that everything changes. The self with a capital S, the I looked at as one. One loves the wife, what? not for the sake of the self, not, not for the sake of the wife, but for the sake of the one. Now we are using the word self with a capital S, so the one self, so I am using the word one to avoid the confusion. One does not love the child for the sake of the child, but for the sake of the one. Now see what kind of love that would be. You know, even this people don't realize when Shirobindo people talk about Shirobindo's nationalism and Shirobindo spoke about India, he was not wanting India to be great for its own sake. He didn't want it to become another great industrialized military civilization which can crush everybody, uh, boomerang and bulldoze over all civilizations. That was not what he wanted. He made it very clear that India must rise because it's needed for the good of the world. Something, you know, which uh, way back... Uh, or rather, later, um, be expressed in very different words that, you know, uh, it must have an Indian ending if this civilization has to survive. The world civilization has to survive. The history of the world has, has to end in Indian terms. Not in a narrow, patriotic, sentimental way, but in the sense that this knowledge 
the knowledge of the one, here is a nation and civilization which has safeguarded it and it can bring it forth again from its marrow. It's there, it's there right into the very bones. Now this knowledge is there in everyone, that's the beauty. It's not unique to India because the one is not unique to India. It's there in the stuff of every living object. Shubhendu says so beautifully, where are the Vedas written? He says the eternal Veda is secret in the heart of every living creature. It's there in everyone. And it discloses itself petal by petal, swiftly or slowly. Once the soul has been enamored of the eternal. So it's there. The Vedas are not a book. In fact, what is there in the book is only a very small portion of the Veda. Even we know that number of Vedic verses are actually lost. But that's not what we are trying to express. Even if one were to write books after books and all the books in the world and all the volumes in the world, one would yet not be able to write the Veda because the Veda is ingrained in the heart of earth, in every atom of existence, there is this Veda. Veda is that knowledge which allows all these things to unfold, yet keeping the basis one. So the law of sacrifice is a reminder that everything in this world that exists does not exist for my limited use and purpose. It exists for the sake of the one. All here that seems to be its lonely self are figures of the soul transcendent one. Now if we just remember this thing, our life begins to change. My life is not just for my own satisfaction. It's meant for expressing the one. Now my whole approach will change. Education will change. It will not be just for a career and a job opportunity. What will be an education if it's meant to express the truth of my being? And the truth of that one expressing itself in an individual, what was called as Swadharma and Swabhava. What kind of education will be that? Uh, very nicely that day, uh, Sampad and myself were discussing and he had a very beautiful uh, uh, understanding of free progress system. You know, if you really translate it literally, it would be a chaos into Hindi. But you know, if you translate it going to its real meaning, so Swabhavaniyata, right? Sampad? Sabhavaniyata, you know, that which is determined by your own self-nature, which is unfolding and expressing the creative, dynamic truth of your being. Now, once we have this principle, everything becomes easy. We don't have to say, this, is, this education should have this, this, that. It will automatically evolve. If I understand that this family is not meant for the sake of my satisfaction, not as a defense which I must use to safeguard against other dangers, in the world. No, this family is meant to express the one in life, in relationships, in, in, in everything else. This business world, this money that empire that I am building is meant to express the one, the truth which is behind. Then everything in life will begin to change. We don't have to even bring in a spiritual being, though the being exists and the Bhakta knows it and he delights in it, even as the divine delights in it. But if we just bring it that well, that one which is in creation is true. It is the soul existent. It is the all beautiful. It is wonderful, delight. So then in everything, we want to express truth and beauty and delight. Not only in our thoughts and feelings, but in our actions. So there is a third level at which Sanatana Dharma operates. And that is even in the most outer conduct. 
So when one folds the hands and does namaste, it's not just a gesture, one of those, you know, peculiar things. It's literally, I bow down to the one who is within you. And who is bowing down? The one who is within me. How beautifully the mother puts it. What is love? She defines it. She says, love is the reaching out of the one divine within us to the one divine in another. When it can touch that core, then there is love and there is beauty. If it cannot do it, then it's lost in the mazes of ego fights. But if it can reach out from the depths, it's a great labor. First to connect to one's own death, death. And we can see it. The more we connect to our depths, the more this power begins to unfold within us. The deeper it can reach out into people who are around us. Simply because it's a great power and it's a power at which we, through which we can connect with everybody at a much more fundamental, essential level than when we are living on the surface. And when we try to translate it on our most outermost gestures and even postures, much of these uh, asanas have come up as spontaneous expressions of a soul state. They are not like, you know, <laughs> the, the modern version is, well, observing... Uh, certain animals and you know no there is a very beautiful line which Kabir says sadho sahaj samadhi bhali it's not something which you have to sit and do it it should come spontaneously even the gestures the postures the mudras must evolve from inside as an expression of the one which is there inside and it's possible and Shubhindu says this is what we are aiming for the outermost activities, the outermost man, the most selfless personality must undergo a change. We are not happy just with an inner change. In fact, he says, an inner change which leaves the outer unchanged is not the goal of our yoga. A lot of yogis have undergone an inner transformation. No big deal about it. They know the one. They have experienced it. But in their outer expression, it can be so even crude. Some of them are known to have used even rough language. And one wonders what kind of a yogi is. Of course he is a yogi. Because at one essential level he has realized the union. But it is not translated into outer life because that outer life is unfit as a vessel to hold that power, to hold that truth, to bring out that beauty. Very often it breaks down by the very effort of realizing the one. And what we have, a beautiful or uh, as I would put it, nectar, sheer nectar but in a cracked pot, not a crack pot. <laughs> crack pot is our definition, but crack pot. We don't want that. We don't want to become crack pots holding nectar. We, we must become beautiful vessels of the beautiful Amrit that flows from the beautiful one. I think uh, I must stop here because there's too much of flow before uh, <laughs> we just <laughs> go way beyond the subject. So we, we'll just take a pause here and, uh, and we'll be meeting over the last few days and nights and afternoons and <laughs> evenings to contemplate on the mysteries of the eternal one who is also the infinite. <laughs>